Support for our show comes solely from listeners like yourself. If you like what we're doing, help us by sharing the pod on social media and leaving us a five-star review, whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Audible. Thanks again for listening, and without further ado, let's start the show. Hi, my name is Ramsey Aziz. I teach AP Psychology, AP European History, Anthropology Honors, and Humanities Honors. And I'm sticking with the union to help protect myself and my coworkers from intrusive government control of our jobs. Welcome back to PCTA's FIRE podcast. As always, I am Brennan Pickett. I am your FEA director and FIRE co-chair. And with me is my bestie friend, uh, Philip Bel Castro, also a, uh, what am I? FIRE co-chair. That's what you are. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Eventually you'll get used to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're here with two special guests. One you've never heard before, and one is my union dad. So go ahead and <laughs> introduce yourself again, guys. I defer to Union Dad. Union Dad, let's hear uh, okay. it. Okay. Uh, hi. Hi, everybody. Union Dad. Uh, my name is Lee Bryant. I teach at St. Pete High School. This is my 28th year. Uh, social studies. Social studies is life. Everything else is a tool to help you live it. Oh, boy. We did something wrong. <laughs> Amen. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Brant Robinson. I am in my 26th year teaching. Uh, 25 of them at Dunedin High School, the same high school where Governor Ron DeSantis graduated from in 1997. Um, I'm honored to be here, and I'm privileged to be in the company of a man I have respect tremendously. I would never call Lee my elder, but I'm also really honored to be here with some younger teachers who I know are really going to lead the way and model where we need to head not only as a union, but you know, with public education in general. So thanks so much. Thank you, Brad. I'm really excited yeah, thank to have. You too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited to have Brad on today. Um, he we're is also on location. We're on location at the union building, at the PCTA building. Mm-hmm. Brad's something of a role model for me. Um, I got to know him pretty closely these last few months. We went to the FEA DA recently. We had a lot of good conversation in the audience, watching uh, the speakers come on, and mm-hmm. uh, he, he is an inspiration in this union. And I'm really excited to have you on today. So thank you. Today, um, we are talking about something that I felt Brant was necessarily, he's, he's a, an expert in this field, I think. Um, in, in years past, I, I watched you speak on these issues before, so that's, you're the first person I thought of when I thought of it. Um, we are speaking today on what they call restorative practices in this union, not union, this district, um, and the idea of equity and um, the idea that these groups like Moms for Liberty, they're coming after these things constantly. If you ever go to a school board meeting, you will hear them say this. You'll hear the school board members who are supporting them say this kind of stuff as well. So the question I'm posing for everyone here, and I'm going to let Brant start us off, of course, is what is the purpose of restorative practices? How is it meant to bolster equity? And why do political extremists like Moms for Liberty take such strong stances against it? Brant, take it away. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, restorative practice is really modeled on the term and the concept of restorative justice. So if you think about the genocide in Rwanda, for example, as an example, I mean, how to reconcile, how to bring people together to not only create new environments where healing can be done, but how do you, how do you acknowledge the harm that was done so that people have faith in each other and fidelity and the relationships they're building and they can go forward? In the case of Rwanda, rebuilding a country. So other public schools in America began 
to model restorative practices based on the fundamental principles of restorative justice. And you know, the, the easiest way to explain restorative practices is that it's about two things. It's about creating an environment where students feel comfortable, but it's also about creating a campus environment where teachers are treated with respect and feel comfortable as well by their administration. And so teachers do that well anyway. Many of us do things that are right in line with restorative practice, but it's about being mindful of trying to create the environment where people can feel comfortable. And, of course, it's also about a way to create an environment where when there's harm done or when there's misbehavior or there's defiance or anything where what otherwise might result in a student you know, being disciplined punitively, there's a way to acknowledge that harm, there's a way to repair that harm, and then there's a way to reintegrate that student back into the environment so that they can move forward and be successful. And so that's the essence of restorative practice. And it's been kind of controversial, not even just for these Moms for Liberty, but also teachers have been having problems with it throughout the years it's been introduced. Um, I guess we can all argue that the district kind of half-baked it in a way. They, they didn't walk the talk. Um, I am privileged to be a licensed trainer. Mm-hmm. Our Human and Civil Rights Committee here in the union, I'm the chair of the Human and Civil Rights Committee, many of us felt like when the district was unveiling this initiative, they were going to be really short on, like, on actual trainers. And we wanted to make sure that they were going to invest in restorative practice, which turns out to be the largest expenditure in the history of our district. We wanted to make sure that it was done with fidelity. So some of us became licensed trainers so we could help the district. And we were partnering with the district to make sure it was done with fidelity. Unfortunately, and that training happened the year before the pandemic, mm-hmm. It wasn't done with fidelity, and it ended up being in the minds of many people just a way to check a box and even more um, damaging, I think, for the reputation, the integrity of the concept is it led a lot of teachers to believe that it was just something the district was doing so they could excuse discipline problems. In other words, not mm-hmm. suspend a kid and then call whatever their remedy was restorative practice. Right. And if you've been in the school system for any length of time, you know that every four or five years there's a new – a new game in town, right. a new thing to do, yeah. another. Un, and it, it I've only been, been in for three years, and I see that. <laughs> it, it transitions constantly. I, I have a stack of binders yeah. with the different theories I've had to implement or the different things. And a lot of people just thought it's just the new thing. It's the new right. Deming model where the students were the customers or something right. like that. Mm-hmm. So I do this 3DE thing at our school at St. Pete High, and I'm one of the lead teachers. And this is something I had to talk to my, um, my students about, the ambassadors. I run a club where a bunch of students kind of run like the, the, the showmanship of it, right? And I have to explain to them because they're trying to sell it right now to Lakewood. And I had to tell them, like, hey, just so you guys are aware, like teachers are, are hard. They're a hard crowd. They're a hard audience, right? Because you have to convince them that this isn't just like some new thing that's going to be coming and going. You have to convince them this is here to stay. And I think what we're describing here kind of reminds me of that, the idea that when we introduced restorative practices, it was like the next best thing, but then no one really bought into it. And that's a huge issue when it comes to this. Yeah, well, the I would just the say, pandemic and the remote learning yes. really hurt it. And I would say here we are, you know, five years after it was initially launched. How many new teachers have come to the district that have never been trained? Mm-hmm. How many teachers did not experience a training that was done with fidelity, so they never really understood the benefits of the concept, which only just reinforced what you know Lee was saying. They've seen these flavors of the month come and go. So to them, it's already – so there's a certain amount of cynicism that's very healthy, but now here we are five years later, and – what does it mean to people? I, I also say, as the as the most junior member at this table right now, this is only my third year teaching. Um, I didn't perceive it as a thing that's just going to come and go. Um, I can honestly tell you, I have no idea if I was trained on it because there's so many meetings and trainings and things and requirements 
that I can't even tell you for sure if I have been to a training about, I know about that and I, and I do it, but I do remember at some point there, uh, there was something, it was a big deal. There was like one training about the circle and you do this, this circle to solve your problems. And I was like not grasping this concept. And then they just kept beating us over the head with it for a full day. I was like, so is the concept that you talk to an individual and solve your problems? And they're like, yeah, basically I was like, but you bought a program for this to talk to a person like a person. And they're like, yeah, pretty much. And I was like, I'm here for a full day, so you can tell me that I need to talk to individuals like a person? Okay. Well, I'm glad you're at the table because I think you're basically reinforcing all the points we've already made. Yeah. yeah. You probably, unfortunately, represent the the viewpoint of the majority of teachers in the district. Well, I mean, for me, it's it doesn't – it didn't strike me as a, as like a deliberate thing, like a program, because I was always going to do that anyway. I was in, I, I will say in my classroom, I have never once written a referral. If I have a problem with an individual, and I say this as part of my syllabus, I say, this is the way that things are going to go. If we have an issue first, I'm going to talk to you. And then if that doesn't work, I'm going to, you know, talk to somebody at home. And if that doesn't work, then I'll go to an administrator, but you're going to, you're going to hit the first barrier which is going to be the toughest one, which is me dealing with a person to person because having that, that interpersonal conflict um, makes people uncomfortable. So I say, you know, we're going to just go out in the hall and just have a conversation about whatever the thing is. And that has never failed me. This, this, this in my short time teaching, that has never once failed to just do exactly what you're saying, just not calling it something. By the way, in restorative practice language, that's called affective statements so it just i mean it's it's really what we we do when you talk to students like that with empathy and you're modeling that because right. their brain's not fully developed and you realize you're the most credible person in the room that that's restorative practice right yeah. there but that's one that's one element yeah so let's do a quick little hey guys you're listening to pcta's fire podcast i'm brennan pickett i'm here with philip Belcastro, and we're talking to brant robinson and lee bryant about restorative practices and equity within the district and how political extremism has been t- running rampant so getting to that point though why do these groups like moms for liberty have a problem with restorative practices so after that great discussion to kind of help people appreciate where we are as a district i i totally believe in restorative practices i mean i'm a licensed trainer but it's what all people do to try and create an environment that is based on equity, right? Because equity is essentially about creating an environment where there's fairness. Fairness across a wide spectrum of ethnic, racial, cultural, but just any differences of students. People go through situations in their life, and you know, and I know as teachers, for every one student that we know is going through something, there's probably four or five in your classroom Absolutely. that are suffering in silence. So yep. you know, if there's a sense that they don't feel comfortable in the classroom, that's what equity is all about. Mm -hmm. And anyone, even with respect to people in Moms for Liberty, all the great teachers that they've ever had would have to acknowledge that those teachers were modeling diversity, equity, and inclusion, which now have been demonized. So to get to to your question about what's in it for them, sadly, restorative practice, equity, culturally relevant teaching, they've all been conflated to be part of a bundle that's associated with critical race theory. So this is all part of a strategy. I have to say, I don't think that anyone, really, I don't think anyone in Moms for Liberty could explain what restorative practice is. I don't think they could explain what critical race theory is. I don't think they could explain what equity is. They just see it all as part of a package of something that's sinister, and that's going to harm their kids. That's so wild, because this has nothing to do with critical race theory, I feel like. It's a complete, completely different thing. We're trying to make sure kids feel comfortable in the classroom and they want to learn. Right. <laughs> but, with yeah, but it's all part of the... <clears throat> the culture war 
that they feel is being put upon them, and that's just one piece of it. That's right. And and again, we have to remember that that culture where you're referring to is based on a lot of miseducation. Hmm. Let's be honest, and with respect to you, audience, be honest with yourselves. Do you know what critical race theory is? Because I happen to be a person that has a master's degree in African-American history, mm-hmm. and I'd only first heard the term critical race theory in late 2020. Mm-hmm. So that, that, right behind you. That term, was, that term was especially a man named Christopher Rufo, who we all know recently has been named to the, the Board of Trustees of New College. But Christopher Rufo is probably the one person who's more singly responsible for injecting the term critical race theory into the national dialogue and discourse. And he's written extensively about how much he is celebrating the fact that he's taken this term and he's turned it into a boogeyman. He's yeah. aware of that. He's done that strategically. Mm. But the point is that most of the people – to, to my estimation, this really began in the summer of 2020, when yeah. millions of people, hundreds of thousands of white Americans began to want to examine systemic racism more deeply mm-hmm. because they watched a human being die on video for nine minutes. Yeah. And because of that, that was deeply troubling to people on the right. So, so finding something that they can call critical race theory is for them their answer to their version of the problem, which is all these people that are trying to push a version of America – that as Lee said, you know, they don't they don't think that their country is still their country. They think it's being taken from them by any number of others. And thank you, Brian. That was great. But it's just I keep thinking of like, where is this leading us? You know, because I personally feel like these 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 moms, I call them moms, right? These moms for liberty. I don't think they hate public education. Like I don't feel like in their core and inside, I don't feel like they really hate teachers. I don't feel like they really hate education. They're kind of lied to. They're spoon-fed this idea. And I don't think they understand the repercussions of what's going to happen from this. So I guess I'm going to kind of segue into this. Like, Where is this taking us? Where are we going by trying to demonize equity in our schools? What will our schools look like? Anyone have any ideas for that? Well, uh, if they're uh, looking back at the good old days, I'm old enough to remember getting getting whooped at school right. by teachers in the classroom and then later by administrators. And that's an easy solution to a very complex problem. The hardest, hardest thing I ever did was after getting whooped, the principal would sit down and we would talk it out and we'd wind up shaking hands. Mm-hmm. Some of my best friends were people I got into – altercations with in schools but you learn to work things out uh they're looking at the good old days and wanting to see the good old days Uh, and does that mean corporal punishment is that what they're looking for i I, I think corporal punishment is part of it but i think it's the mentality of what we had was better than what we're going to have okay And, and they want to make sure that they're holding on to what they had well, for me, it's about white supremacy, and I don't want to oversimplify, but I think a lot of us forget that it wasn't until the 1960s that the major legal underpinnings of the Jim Crow system, the 80-year system of legalized racial segregation and discrimination that we had in this country, it wasn't until the 1960s that the major pillars were finally you know, abolished, right? The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. So we're in a vast experiment that we've never actually, I don't think, appreciated. When have we ever created a public school system? where all students were truly valued, regardless of their ethnicity or their, their heritage. Right. Or their race. I mean, have we ever done that? So mm-hmm. I, think, I think when Lee speaks of the good old days, 
Oh, I don't think they were good old days. I think <laughs> that's what I mean. Well, hold exactly. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Exactly. I don't think they were oh the good old days. Exactly. I, they were the good old days if you were a middle class white man, especially yes. yeah. uh, in the system. Uh, this that's, whole it was good for be, their days. This whole episode is going to be chopped up and soundbited. I can tell already. <laughs> well, not not to say that Lee's old because we're both older gentlemen, but we can say when when he talks about the good old days, what he's really referring to is. In the mindset of a lot of those people who right. follow Donald Trump or, or Moms for Liberty, and if you remember, Donald Trump himself was very very evocative of the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we understand what was going on in the country in the 1950s. So, we we've never really had a public school system that's really lived up to and modeled the ideals that this country was founded on. Right. So, in that sense, we ought to maybe be talking about what does public education really look like in its mm-hmm. in its ideal state. Yeah, I know Pinellas has has a history with like the public schools and I know busing and everything like that because um, when I was in USF St. Pete, I wrote a big paper. It was part of my my honors thesis, all about um, socioeconomic and uh, uh, you know demographics essentially. Which for me was kind of a weird thing because I'm not from here. I was just very interested in it. And at the time, part of what led to that project was because I was working for the Pinellas County Housing Authority. And when people talk. Um, sort of ignorantly about um, race and economics and how that affects schools and things like that. In my mind, I'm like, well, have you looked at a map? Like, I mean, maps just tell that story. So if you're wondering why certain schools um, serve certain populations and certain populations are have certain ethnic makeups and certain ethnic makeups have certain economic statuses, I mean, you can literally just look at maps. Well, especially in Pinellas County. Right. And that's what fascinated me about it. So, I mean, I I wrote this whole long paper and it's like, like exploding my brain. And I'm like, this is extremely simple. It's not. I mean, it's complex. It's complex. It's complicated. Right. But for the people who just don't get it, who just want to write off poor neighborhoods or poor demographics or certain schools or certain ways of educating or disciplining people, um, like you said, I mean, the housing authority was only a, was you know HUD was only formed in the '60s, and that's you know relatively speaking not that long ago. And those maps are still I mean, we still have those scars. Our highways here in Pinellas mm-hmm. are those scars. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a pretty it's a pretty gigantic issue if you know where to look. And let me echo what you're saying because to me the other parallel here in the front full frontal assault on public education, in addition to the critical race theory, equity, restorative practice, uh, strategy of Moms for Liberty, we have to also understand that the attack on the teaching of history in its entirety. Because mm-hmm. your comment about the roots of this, they go back to, again, the legislation and mm-hmm. the Brown versus Board of Education decision to try and integrate public schools. And that has been a tremendous battle. And how many people understand even the, hist- the recent history here in the county of why we have schools where this school has disproportionate percentage of right. this ethnic group and this group? Most people even don't even know the history of of the schools they're sending their students to, their children right. to. Yeah, and that that in that history is the answer to how we can go forward. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but every once in a while, um, I forget which lesson it's part of, but I, I do ask this every year. I ask my students if they know where public schools get their money from. Do you guys ever ask your students that? Um, they always I say do. taxes. I do. Yeah, but they they don't know how you do. I because you're t- when you I teach, teach the industrial design. revolution, which is the next unit that I'm I'm teaching right. in world history. I I my curriculum standards, socialism, capitalism, communism, and I have mm-hmm. to make sure they understand 
what socialism is, and I make sure right. they're aware that socialism is here in this country. It's a part of it, and public schools are socialism. Yeah. yeah. When we when we talk about um, you know the various characters in our stories and how our history plays into all those things, and I ask them if they know, most of them don't. They'll they'll say something generalized like taxes, um, but when I say no, it's actually property taxes, just what's around the building, and then it's like maybe five seconds before a student says, "Wait, so poor neighborhoods." Have poor schools, and I was like, "Bingo!" There you go. That's that's the story of education in zip the codes. United States. Yeah, zip, zip codes, codes right. determine so much of what goes on in our right. cities and our country. Mm-hmm. And to go back to your comment about the history, I mean, that takes you back to the very communities people are living in and why those exist. And that mm-hmm. takes you back to examples of systemic racism, like redlining. Mm-hmm. Now, in the 1950s, those glorious good old days, you know, the first suburbs in the United States, almost all of them were explicitly mm-hmm. written in their codes whites only you yeah. know and so that that's a still that's a profoundly yeah. um, resonant fact about where we live now and where we send our kids to school one of my one of my projects when i worked at the housing authority was digging through some of their archival documents from the 60s right in the beginning of their of their uh, formation there and some of the language and some of those official documents i was like holy moly this has not aged well <laughs> that's right you're listening to PCTA's Fire Podcast. I'm Brendan Pickett here of Philip El Castro. And today we're talking about restorative practices, equity, and why political extremists are against it. We're here with Brent Robinson and Lee Bryant. I kind of want to go to our last part here. This has been really great. It's nice and productive, I think, is um, what's next? I kind of want to speculate a little bit. You know, like, let's say this fails, which I hope to God it fails as an initiative from the Moms for Liberty, right? But what's next? What should we be on the lookout for? What do you guys think? Uh, I personally think that uh, with the voucher program that is uh, looks like it's probably going to get passed. Oh yeah, the school public school systems are going to be less funded and less funded and less funded uh, to the point of possible collapse. And we will see what happened in other places, like in New Orleans after Katrina, Chile, uh, in Chile, where the public school systems cease to exist and it is all privatized. And then they realize that the privatization doesn't work. And they're going to have to rebuild the public school system again. Which costs a lot of money. Which is going money. to be very expensive. <laughs> a lot of money. What do you think, Philip? What's next? Uh, I don't know. I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't know if I'll be around to see it. So, I mean, I kind of see – I don't want to say I see the writing in, on the wall here. But as a new educator, I was actually just talking to a student earlier saying that I have never felt more um, – at home and at place than in education. I, you know, I've reached this point at almost 36 years old, having had, you know, as I've said before on the podcast, uh, millions of jobs that this is where I belong definitively. I, I am an educator. Um, but I don't know if I'm going to stick around to find out, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, I just don't really know where things are going. And what I see is a, devaluation of the professionalism, the devaluation of us four sitting at this table, everybody else who's been on the podcast, many of our listeners, um, that what is happening here is that the the professional job of educating, the, the expertise that's required, all of the trainings that we that is required of us is no longer valued. So if we're moving to a place where they want to replace us, with uh, you know Albert I O and IXLs, and they want to replace us with um, you know government-approved curriculum based on agendas and things like that. Um, I don't know if I'm here for that. That's kind of not why not why I got into this. So that's where I'm at. 
Brent? I guess part of it is because I'm a historian and a history teacher. I want to zoom out and kind of take a longer view. Um, we have to remember we had segregated, racially segregated public schools for a long part of our history. So if you put that in the context of what's been happening in Florida over the last 20 years, you know, we have already seen that nobody who advocates for charters or all of these policies and programs and all these isms and attacking things on critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera, I don't think they want to take over public schools. And I want to make sure we're aware. I don't think they have the integrity. If public schools were to be taken over, could they actually be credible and competent to run them? That's mm -hmm. not the goal. We have to look to what's happened in the last 20 years. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the, the mantra that's been used to demonize public schools, ironically, is accountability. But the only people that have not been held accountable are the lawmakers for the last 20 years who've mm -hmm. essentially sort of siphoned off public funds from public schools so that they can gratify big donors in co corporations like Pearson. So what have we seen? We've seen so many of our core classes devalued and turned into you know, testing factories. Well, what's happened over the last 10 years, in addition to that trend, is in 2011, the law, Senate Bill 736, was passed, which meant that all Florida teachers are on annual contract. Yep. If you're on an annual contract and your evaluation is done every year, and that is what's going to determine you staying for the next year at your school, and to a certain extent, your evaluation is based on those standardized tests, mm -hmm. then education is already being devalued. Yeah. And it means it's less attractive to teachers. And we've already seen that long before the pandemic, there was a teacher shortage and a teacher exodus. And so I was like, where are we? I think we're at a point that we have to organize extremely well, mm -hmm. and we have to do exactly what we're doing here. And it's going to take people like us to reach out, build consensus, often with people we disagree with. But we have to be the models. We have to be the most decent, the kindest, but the most fierce and credible people in the room. And it takes time, and it means we have to take care of each other and ourselves while we do it. Absolutely. It's so scary, Brent, because I just don't think all of us have it in us to do the fight, you know? Amen. And every day, I'm, I'm – I'm going to say it on the, on the air, but I, I've been thinking about moving, you know, I want to go to like Washington state where, you know, they respect teachers. I was looking at getting jobs outside of Seattle, you know, you know, they start at in Seattle, like outside Seattle, not in Seattle. They start at $74,000 with a master's mm -hmm. degree. My wife's going to finish her, um, uh, educational leadership degree soon. You know what an AP starts out? At, it's hundred and forty thousand yeah. dollars. And I was looking for jobs. I was going, I was scrolling through the, the, the listings, right? There's not a single teacher opening in these districts. I looked at six yeah. districts, six districts. I couldn't find a single right. English position. You know we are open right now in Pinellas County alone? I think over 200. <laughs> it, yeah. Well, I that just, goes back to the entire devaluation of labor in the whole country. Right. I mean, we, we are really devaluing the average worker and the average laborer in this country. That's They're right. not getting recognized. Mm -hmm. You said $74,000. It just triggered a memory we, we're talking about today. In order to qualify for the average home in the Tampa Bay area in 2022, you needed a $74,000 or $74,000 a year income. That was last year. This year, it's $113,000 yeah. to buy a home in this area. So I, I agree with all of you guys. We need to really like sit down, reflect, and say, how are we going to save this? Um, but I don't think it's going to be teachers alone at this point where we need parents we need students we need community members we need the entire state of florida to back us and say no this is a good thing why are we destroying it why we need to hold i like the idea of accountability we're always held accountable why aren't we holding those politicians accountable mm -hmm. why amen i would just say that one of the biggest ironies in all of this is if you ask any teacher 
one of their consistent ongoing concerns or challenges is that there's never enough parental or guardian involvement. And we say that with tremendous respect. Many of our parents and guardians are single parents. We understand that. We're not mm-hmm. judging any of them. But for years, we've always complained. So we're being attacked in, under this mantra of, of parental rights. You know, our public schools have always been open. They've yep. always been open. So one yeah. of the things that's going to be critical for us is to be able to build relationships with people in communities and to reach out and make sure that we educate and inform the public about what's really happening in schools. Right. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do here. That's exactly. That was, that was my thought. Exactly. That's what this is. Do here. Yeah. So I guess with that, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to do our base awards, guys. Thank you for listening. All right. Hey, guys. It's Brennan. One of my goals moving into this podcast project was to have the voices of our listeners play an active role in sharing our message that Union's public schools, well, they're not going anywhere without a fight. And as we dive deeper into the themes of public education, teachers' unions, and political activism, we want to hear from you, our listeners. If you're a teacher, parent, even a member of the community, we extend an open invitation for you to send us a voice recording with your name, occupation, and why you're sticking with the union during these politically turbulent times. We love to play these recordings at the beginning of our episodes and share your thoughts with our listeners. You can send these recordings to PCTA Fire, that's F Y R E pod at gmail.com. Additionally, we encourage you to write to your representative and advocate for teachers' unions and public education. You can easily locate your representative by visiting www.myfloridahouse.gov forward slash find your representative. Your voice can make a difference in supporting education and the future of our students. So take a moment to send us a voice clip and write to your representative. Let's work together to positively impact education for all. Hello there. If you support the podcast, you can now donate directly to us from the link in the description. You can donate 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 monthly. Your donation can help get me, Aziz, off the streets. Well, Unfortunately, Aziz will always be on the streets. He yearns for the streets. But your support will go towards producing high-quality episodes just like the one you're listening to right now. Your support helps us keep gas in the tank, food on our tables, and our classrooms full of pencils and paper. We all know edumacators all over America are undervalued and underpaid. Help us, mooks like me, continue to bring recognition and a voice to education professionals. And we're back. Um, as we already know, we're going to do our based awards. Now, a based award is something that is agreeable, as Ramsey would say, or something that's respectable. <laughs> and if it's respectable or agreeable, you say, that's pretty based. Okay. Um, <laughs> of loose, the loosest of definitions. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, all it is is what was something from last week or yeah. in your life in the past week that's been pretty, pretty great. Yeah, it doesn't have right? to be school related. It doesn't have to be school good. related. It could be politics, be whatever you want. Mr. Bryant, do you want to start us off? Okay. Uh, yeah. Today, a former student came to our school, and she mentioned my name as one of the teachers that she remembered. She is a uh, Tori McGee is her name right now. Uh, oh, I saw this. Yeah. She was. Uh, she's a children's book author. Yeah. She's written uh, half a dozen children's stories. One uh, I saw was called Sloth Don't Run, and I looked at it and said, yeah, neither do I. <laughs> if you see me running, you, yeah. you better be beating me because there's a real problem if I'm running. 
Uh, but uh, it was really great uh, seeing you know somebody from 20 years ago. I teach one semester classes, so about 300 students a year. 28th year, I have seen a lot of faces come yeah, through my kidding. room, uh, and I didn't recognize the name to be honest, right off the top. But when I saw her, I, I oh, oh yeah, I can put a face together much more than I can put a name uh, with a memory. So yeah. it was really interesting. It was really nice seeing her. Uh, she's a, a marketing director for a Fortune 500 company. Oh. Uh, they the uh, One of the interview questions was, well, are you surprised? I went, you know, I'm rarely surprised at the success of my students. We have had some amazing people come through our schools. And it does not surprise me when they're successful. Hmm. Uh, so surprises me when I'm successful, but <laughs> not, not when they are. <laughs> Brent, what do you got over there? Tuesday, Valentine's Day, I took my first day off of the year. Wow. Um, it's also my mom's birthday, so I've made a daily TikTok video every day for the last two and a half years. So I made my TikTok video about my mom. Very nice. And it was a great start to the day. Um, I went rock climbing. I did my laundry. I swept the downstairs. I actually enjoy sleeping. And then later, guys, wait for this. On a school night, me and my lady, who also teaches with me at Dundee High School, we went to see a movie. I hadn't seen whoa. a movie in the last two years. We went to see a movie on a school night. Please say whoa. Well, and, uh, whoa. And, and this movie, Pure Escapism, I think it's Magic Mike's Final Act, oh. right? right? I know, right? You know, some good-looking guys dancing. You got Selma Hayek, right? Just good, clean fun. I'm not going to talk about how the day ended. I'm just going to say, like, from start to finish, from start to finish, it was a great day. That's pretty based. <laughs> <laughs> how, how would you rate the movie? Was it a good movie? I got to tell you, I mean, it was surprisingly plot-driven. I yeah. thought it was very, very well-written. Yeah. I was, like, pleasantly surprised. And, you know, the guys, their bodies were great. They were great dancers. It was wonderful. I've actually heard good things about the Magic Mike movies, but they're mostly from my sister, so yeah. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> she might have a different agenda. Well, now you have Brant's endorsement. I too. do. I'm yeah, saying. I'm gonna. Hey, let's all after this go see Magic Mike together. Yes, <laughs> it's the final act. So I'm really excited for this one. Um, this Tuesday, what was Tuesday? That was, that was Valentine's Day, wasn't it? I guess so. Yes. Yeah. Oh my yes. gosh, Bernie. It was Monday. It was the 13th. Never mind. So February 13th, there was a AFT NEA town hall, and Bernie Sanders was leading it, and he was there with. Um, the Massachusetts guy, help me out, Massachusetts Senator. John F. Kennedy. We saw him at AFT. What was his name? Uh, God, I was drawing a blank. Well, we get to him. Um, my wife's going to kill me for this one. But we, um, I was watching it, and I'm not going to get too political on here, but in 2016, Bernie Sanders ran for president, as we all know, and it was a really um, heated. Well, you can't say that on here, that well, he ran for really president. really heated him and Hillary Clinton, well, right? And I was a bright-eyed 20 20- four-year-old i think and bernie sanders was someone who i idolized and i thought he had my back back then and i was reminded on monday that yep bernie sanders still has my back six years later he still has my back seven years later right um he was out there yelling about how teachers need federal assistance and making sure they get paid more he understood that pay was not the only reason why there's a teacher shortage in the country not just florida of course the country he wants to institute a $60,000 minimum salary for all teachers in this country and a whole lot of other stuff. And I was, this is the funny part. I was, I was listening to him talk and he's going to introduce his bill to the Senate real soon. We'll, we'll see how far it goes, of course. But uh, I was like, this sounds familiar. And I, I went on his website and was like, oh, it was, he ran his presidential bid on this last time. <laughs> there it is. He's going to put it in a bill now and try to yeah. pass it. Markey or Warren? Markey. Markey. Thank you. Uh-huh. 
I knew who Warren was. Marky. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So that was my base award. I thought it was pretty cool. It was a nice little reminder. Well, if we get $60,000 a year, that'll put me right back to where I was last year. So inflation-wise, <laughs> uh, maybe I could afford to live in the city I work in. Um, I, I, my base award is, is pretty silly. Um, Pickett had, also, had already mentioned the, the Chinese balloon yes. on a previous episode. Yes. The spy um, balloon. The, the the UFO sightings have not stopped. Uh, we might go into a war, war of the Worlds podcast here in a moment, but my brother has been following these these UA what are they called now unidentified aerial phenomenon the UAPs. Mm-hmm. They're not UFOs anymore because some of them are not flying. Some of them are apparently just hovering in the air <laughs> with no propulsion and no controls. And like these five star Pentagon generals are just like, yeah, we we have no idea what they are. Shoot and, it, yeah, just shoot it. <laughs> Everybody's just like, this is fine. We have other problems. Eggs are fourteen dollars now so we can't be worried about this stuff so my brother has just been updating me casually just through text message of uh you know they shot down another ufo over massachusetts or they shot down another ufo over north dakota and i'm like i i mean i live in my bubble too i live in teaching bubble podcast bubble or whatever and i'm not following these things either and I'm just getting more and more alarming updates from my brother about UFOs over the United States. And now that I'm joining Space Force, which is the plan. I was getting there. Yeah. What, yeah, go ahead. What am I in for? I'm excited for you to join a Space Force because you'll be on the front line <laughs> stopping these UFO things from making it to our soil. Set phasers to kill. I yes. just saw the other day the reason they're using missiles, because you mentioned about the cost of the missiles yeah. to shoot them down, oh. is because if you shoot one of those high-altitude balloons, balloons with a bullet it doesn't it doesn't do anything it bounces back no it doesn't bounce back it pierces it but something about the physics keeps the balloon in the air no matter how many holes you put in it oh my goodness so they have to use a missile to blow blow the balloon up to get it to uh to fall have they tried lightsabers yet no yeah that's gonna be your job yeah (laughs) so as you know as unless bernie gets the 60k through and i can afford to live um then I'll stay a teacher, but otherwise I need the military to pay for me to live on base because I can't do this anymore. I also have other things that Bernie Sanders wants to pass. He wants to triple the funding in Title I schools. Okay. Um, what else? Oh, I had the other ones. Oh, he wants to make sure charter schools don't get a dime of it. That was kind of cool. <laughs> and there's a lot of cool stuff he wants to propose. He has our backs. That's my matter one there. He does. has our backs. All right. well, anyway, that's all we have for today. Um, live thanks. long and prosper. May the force be with you. Yeah, peace out. All right. <laughs> Hey everyone, we would like to remind our listeners about important school board meetings taking place on March 21st and April 11th at 10am, as well as a 5pm meeting on April 25th. Remember, it's vital for teachers, parents, and community members to attend these meetings and advocate for public education. Your voice and presence can play a significant role in shaping the future of education and improving the lives of students in our community. We want to give a special thank you to Philip Belcastro for providing our theme music and Artifact for adding some great tracks into our intermissions. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Artifact's music at artifactjoints.bandcamp.com. We also want to express our gratitude to Radio St. Pete for airing our podcast, Jamie Beck, Brian Balton, Carla Correa, and Nancy Filardi, as well as all of our supporters in the education community. 
Your support and dedication has been instrumental into getting the word out and reaching new listeners. Well, that's all for today. I'm Brennan Pickett. You guys have a great day.